Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and welcome to Back to the Bible Canada. Today we're continuing our series, Abraham, Father of All Who Believe, with a message entitled, Submitting to Our Great High Priest. So let's turn in our Bibles to Genesis chapter 14, verses 17 to 24, as we join Dr. John Neufeld now. Vince Lombardi, perhaps the most famous of football coaches, once said, Show me a good loser, and I'll show you a loser. Now, I assume that many of you have heard that quote before, and some people, well, they've made it their mantra. Well, fine and well, but what should be your attitude when you become a winner? Well, Alexander the Great, after he had subdued nations, is said to have wept because there were no more worlds to conquer. He died in an early age in a state of debauchery. He had no idea how to be a good winner, nor what winning actually meant. The same can be said of a whole host of others who who have won impressive victories and had no idea what to do with it. Here's a little-known secret. About 70% of lottery winners who win between $1 to $500 million have lost or spent everything they won within five years. Most of them are far worse off than they would have been if they had never won in the first place. The fact is, both winning and losing can be devastating. Now, there's an old saying that says there are two things that can happen to you that will leave your life with a feeling of regret. One is never having attained that which you were aiming at, and the other is to attain that which you were aiming at. You know, for some of us, we would never have guessed that. The last half of Genesis 14 is a fascinating account of the aftermath of a brilliant military victory. Four kings from the east had invaded Canaan, and five local kings from around the Jordan River resisted them, only to be utterly defeated, resulting in a great loss of life and the devastation of their cities. And Lot Abram's nephew has been captured, and supposedly he is sold as a slave. In an act of courageous initiative, Abram has taken after the four armies, following them to the north of Canaan, and then in a brilliant night raid, He surprises the unsuspecting invading army, inflicting serious damage on them, recapturing Lot and also recapturing the vast booty that the combined four armies had taken in their raid. You know, up to this moment, we have seen Abram settling most likely in the region around Hebron, and it's there that he's built powerful alliances with three brothers who would have controlled that region. Even though he arrived as a stranger in the land, he slowly and deliberately is building a presence so that he's accepted in the land and he's not vulnerable to attack. But the events of Genesis 14 suddenly transformed him from a man who's building alliances in the land to an instant war hero and a liberator of towns and villages and cities. He moves quickly to becoming one of the most powerful forces in the region. In short, he's becoming a winner and an overnight sensation. He's a hero, one whom everyone is talking about. Furthermore, even though he's already a rich man, his wealth after his victory made him into one of the richest men in the region. He's now arrived. And the question we're addressing in today's study is the question of what we should do when our wildest dreams succeed, when all men speak well of us, and when we've won our greatest battles. So let's find out how Abram, the the man of faith, handles success. And let's learn how we might do the same if God so directs our lives. So let's begin to read Genesis 14, 17. After his return from the defeat of Chedorlaomer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him in the valley of Sheva, that is the king's valley. Now first, we need to picture Abram's movements. 
The victory he's just won would have happened somewhere north of the Sea of Galilee, somewhere close to where modern-day Israel meets Syria today. From there, he takes Lot and the considerable plunder that he would have inherited, and he moves south as quickly as he can. He doesn't want the defeated armies to be able to regroup and form some kind of a counterattack. But he's also moving south in order to take Lot, his nephew, back home, which would have been close to the Dead Sea. And now he arrives in what would be called the Valley of Shava. Many Bible teachers believe this to be the upper Kidron Valley, which leads directly into the city of Jerusalem. You know, at this point, Abram is still some distance from the lower Jordan Valley, but the king of Sodom, one of the defeated kings, indeed the king of the city where Lot lives, has made his way out to greet him and and to congratulate him, and, and we have to assume to endear himself to Abram and perhaps even to get some of his stolen wealth back to his city. See, one of the things that everyone who has ever achieved success understands, that at the moment of success, suddenly, almost out of nowhere, new friends suddenly arrive and they want a part of you. And Abram finds this out immediately. See, one might expect that other kings would arrive shortly, but then, unexpectedly, a king we've never heard of before arrives. I'm reading Genesis 14, 18 to 20. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. Now, it might be possible to pass this matter over quickly, except that this man is mentioned one more time in the Old Testament and then another time in the New Testament. So let's start with Psalm 110, which is one of the royal psalms of David. Psalm 110 not only celebrates the kingdom of David, but it looks forward with anticipation in that David knows that in the future, the Messiah will inherit his throne, and from it, he will rule the entire earth. And that's why this psalm begins with the words, The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. See, there's an anticipation that David's throne would eventually triumph over all of God's enemies. And then speaking about this Messiah who is to come, Psalm 110 verse 4 says, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You, that is, the Messiah to come, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The great king to come, the Messiah, who is going to rule forever, will not only be a great king, but he'll also be a priest just like the priest King Melchizedek, the one Abram encountered. Well, suddenly we realize that whoever this Melchizedek was, he's far more important than the king of Sodom. So let's now go to the New Testament book of Hebrews, chapter 7, verses 1 to 3. There we read, For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him Abram apportioned a tenth of everything. He is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness, and then he is also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. (laughs) That's quite a description. So who exactly is this man? Well, let's go back to the encounter we read of in Genesis 14. Leaving the Hebrews passage until later, let's agree that this is a real man ruling over a real city some 4,000 years ago. 
See, what I mean to say is this. It seems highly unlikely that this is an appearance of Christ in the Old Testament. After all, this is an ancient king who has been ruling over his city, not a person who appears for a moment and then disappears later. The city Salem is clearly a reference to Jerusalem. Since Jerusalem is one of the oldest cities in human history, it should not be surprising to find the city inhabited and ruled by a king in the time of Abram. But what is to some a surprise is the contrast to the king of Sodom. The city of Sodom is one of the most sexually degraded cities in the world, and the city of Salem or Jerusalem is ruled by a man whose name, Melchizedek, means king of righteousness. Now, it's not surprising to find a king who serves as both a priest and a king at the same time. That idea was common in the ancient world. But what is surprising is that the God whom he serves is not given a name like that of the gods of the pagan deities around him. Rather than giving the name of this man's God, the Bible simply gives the title of his God. He is God Most High. See, the title simply means that his God is the supreme deity, the the highest and, and the most exalted. See, from a description of the text, it seems that not only has Abram been visited by the one true God, so also has this man, this king, in Jerusalem. So it would seem then that even though Melchizedek had not been attacked by the kings of the east and he was not affected by the war in his region, And even though he had nothing to gain from going out to meet Abram, Melchizedek journeys to meet Abram with a recognition that both he and Abram worship the same God who owns heaven and earth. And Abram is about to take a tithe from the plunder of the battle he was in and give it to this remarkable priest from Jerusalem as an act of worship to the one true God. Clearly, it seems that Abram believes that the way to celebrate victory is to make a sacrificial act of worship, and that it's worship that is the key to victory. God never promised that this life would be easy, but he did promise that he would be there with us, guiding our footsteps along the way in our working, deciding, moving, marrying and burying, through grief or joy in family and community, God is present. He is active in all the seasons of life. But the truths of God's faithfulness can become muted by the noise of our present circumstances. That's why this month, Back to the Bible Canada is offering a free booklet called Restored, A Story of Lives Redeemed. It walks us through the book of Ruth and the seed of hope that one family's redemption story offers to us all. If you're in need of encouragement in your own story, this booklet is for you. To request your free copy today, just call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca. The king of Jerusalem has just traveled up the Kidron Valley to meet Abram, and as he does, he offers him bread and wine. No, this is not communion or a prefiguring of the death of Jesus. It was most likely an act of kindness to care for Abram's needs. And in so doing, this righteous king offers up a prayer of blessing for Abram. 
Does he know that the Most High God has declared that whoever blesses Abram, that God will also bless him? Well, perhaps he does. We don't know. But what he does here is acknowledge that Abram's victory over the four kings from the east came because God Most High, the one who owns and possesses all things, has overseen this victory. Abram must not think even for a moment that this brilliant victory came about because of Abram's courage or of Abram's skill in warfare, but rather because the Most High God in mercy has delivered his enemies into his hands. How different this is from the king of Sodom, who's looking to ingratiate himself with Abram. See, the difference between those two kings is the difference between one who knows God and one who does not, between one who knows what to do with a victory and one who doesn't. Abram then, without being asked, goes to all the treasure that he's taken from the four kings of the east and counts it out and gives a tithe back to this king. Now, what's he doing? Well, back in Genesis chapter 4, we read the account of two sons of Adam, Cain and Abel. Both of them are in worship, and Abel offers to God the first fruits of everything that he has. In short, he takes the best of his flock, the firstborn of his flock, and offers it to God as an act of worship. In contrast, Cain, the unrighteous brother, offers to God some of the fruit of the ground. It's as if Cain thinks to himself, you know, if God demands an offering, well, then I guess I'm going to have to give it. And in in the end, any old pumpkin will do or any old stalk of corn or whatever God wants. One thousand years after Abram, King David would offer a sacrifice to God on the threshing floor above Jerusalem. Arowana the Jebusite owned that threshing floor and offered it to the king for free. 2 Samuel 24, verse 24, records David's response. He says, I will not offer burnt offerings to the Lord my God that cost me nothing. Worship has always meant to be costly, something that would demand sacrifice of us. I know many who struggle with the idea of tithing or of giving and of sacrifice, but in truth, these matters have always been essential to worship. We today are called to take up our cross and follow Jesus. Worship ought to cost us dearly, for in this act, we're telling God that nothing is more precious than worshiping him. And so Abram counts out a tenth of his spoil and offers it to the only priest he knows, this king from Jerusalem. And that brings us back to the question of who this man was. I know that some think that this must be an appearance of Christ in the Old Testament because in the words of Hebrews 7, which says he is without father and mother or genealogy. But in truth, Hebrews is making the point that Jesus is our great high priest. And to Jewish Christians, that might have seemed impossible because Jesus did not come from the lineage of Aaron. And only those that came from Aaron were allowed to be priests in the Old Testament law. To that, Hebrews responds by saying that Jesus can be a priest because Melchizedek was considered a priest even though he didn't have the benefit of a genealogy attached to him. But the book of Hebrews need not be read to mean that he has no genealogy, only that a genealogy does not factor into his being reckoned as a priest. Now, all that to say that there's every evidence that Melchizedek was a figure in history. But let's get back to the account. Abram has just given 10% of the proceeds of war as an act of worship, and the king of Sodom is standing there and he's watching that. So let's read Genesis 14, 21 to 24. And the king of Sodom said to Abram, 
Give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted my hand to the Lord God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. I will take nothing but what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with me. Let Aner, Eshcol, and Mamre take their share. See, it's difficult to understand what might have caused this interaction. You know, it's possible that the king of Sodom, having witnessed Abram's generosity towards Melchizedek, assumes, therefore, that Abram will also give him 10% of the plunder that originally belonged to him. Now, we can't say for sure because we actually don't know the customs that would have regulated what would have been normal in that day. Now, since Abram won the plunder fair and square, it might have been that in that culture, Abram owned that plunder. No bargaining. It was his. And so the king of Sodom makes it clear that he wants no more than the share that was his by right. He's going to ask for no more. But Abram reacts very negatively to this. He will not at any time in the future allow it to be said that the king of Sodom had contributed to Abram's wealth. Now, if we should go back to Genesis 12, verse 16, you ought to remember that Pharaoh, king of Egypt, gave Abram sheep and oxen and male donkeys and so forth. So it seems clear that Abram was not averse to accepting gifts from pagan kings. But here, in the case of the king of Sodom, Abram has a very different attitude seems quite clear that Abram is reacting very badly to this man. And why is that? Well, back in Genesis 13, when Abram and Lot separated, Lot chose to go to rich farmland near the city of Sodom. I mean, the text says, the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. And in Jude verse 7, in the New Testament, we read, Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. See, what is Jude talking about? Well, it's described in Genesis 19. Lot is visited by two angels who have come in the form of men. When men of Sodom see these two male strangers in their town, their first reaction is to attack and to rape them. See, that's the kind of city that Sodom was. It was violent. It was sexually immoral. It was filled with every form of indecency. And no doubt, Abram knows everything about Sodom and makes it plain that never in the future does he want to make it seem that there is any kind of alliance between him and the men of Sodom. Whatever success meant for Abram, he will not be seduced to use it in forming an alliance with kings and leaders who are fundamentally immoral men. Abram has shown that he's aware that his success came exactly as Melchizedek has described it. It was God who delivered Abram's enemy into his hands, and it was God who gave him success. This was God's design for him. It's what God had planned for him. And because of that, This was not the time to become proud nor to imagine that he had some great influence in Canaan. See, in that sense, in the midst of his success, nothing at all had changed for Abram. God was still in control as he had been before, and Abram's only motivation was to rest in the security of God's promises. And that is the response of every man or woman of faith. Whenever we encounter success, nothing but nothing ever changes. Our hope has never been in our success. Our hope 
was always in God and that we might live in submission to his will. Whether we succeed in this world or whether we fail in this world, that matter has always been in God's hands and not in ours. It's God's plan for our lives. And so, my dear listener, we need to learn the secret of contentment, of success, and the secret of contentment in failure. We need to learn the secret of depending in God and not in how we do. We need to have confidence in God and not lose confidence when we fail. Indeed, it's never been about our efforts, has it? It's always been about God's loving plan to work out all things for our good. And so if all your plans succeed today, nothing has changed. And if all your plans have fallen on the floor and you seem so disappointed in what's happened, listen, nothing has changed. Continue to act and trust as a man or a woman who is confident in but one thing and in one thing alone. God keeps his promises to those who are in covenant relationship with him. Heavenly Father, we ask you, O Lord God, help us to learn from this man, Abram, who when he defeated the kings and all men in his country looked at him with with new eyes, help us to be like him, to see that it was God that delivered us. Oh, Lord God, may we never find pleasure in what we can accomplish, but may we rather be enamored in what you are doing in our lives to your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. John, this message is a great reminder. You know, I think one of the biggest issues, particularly for men, is to put sort of our fame or our pride aside when good things have happened. And yet, uh, you know, it really is one of the things that separates us from walking close to God, isn't it? Yeah, I think it's a particularly male thing, although I think there are women that have this too. But men especially have this need to talk about what they are, who they are, what they've accomplished, and so forth. I mean, it's it's a part and parcel of, of who we are. I think we can make this godly if we do what Paul told us to do in, you know, I think 1 Corinthians chapter 2, where, you know, he's... He's arguing against the divisions in the church, and he's saying, you know, what do you have that you did not receive? And so when we put everything under the covering of grace and say, I've never accomplished a thing that God in his mercy did not have for me to do, then suddenly the whole ground shifts underneath our feet, and we begin to recognize that we need to walk humbly in the midst of our successes. Thanks so much, John. Back to the Bible Canada, leading you forward in your walk with Jesus every day. Back to the Bible Canada, we're so humbled to see how God is using this ministry to speak the truths of his word into lives across the nation and beyond. It's our mandate to faithfully present the scriptures exactly as they are to everyone without barrier. And it is so encouraging to see how many listeners stand with us in this commitment. Your gifts are the momentum that helps sustain this Bible teaching and engagement ministry and propels these messages to eyes and ears and hearts from all walks of life. We hear from listeners every week of the impact that Back to the Bible Canada is having on their spiritual journey. Sam wrote, I have learned so much over the past few years from the teachings of this ministry, which in turn has helped me lead my family spiritually. Thanks, Sam. Now, to support this Bible teaching ministry, or to learn about the free Bible resource this month being offered, 
call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca.